the memories. The clock is down to 48 seconds. 20 to 10, Colorado leads Nebraska. They have waited a long time for this. So many times, the red flood has come into Folsom Field, and they have gone back across the border to the north, a winner. It won't be this time. The stories. Brucott to the corner for Carrington, intercepted! Colorado got it! Witherspoon! With the biggest play in Colorado football for years! And now, as a supplement to over 40 years worth of CU football coverage in the CU at the Game archives, here is Stewart with his CU at the Game podcast. Greetings, Buff fans, from CU at the Game. This is Stuart Whitehair, publisher and editor for the See What the Game website, and your host for the See What the Game podcast. You know that football season is getting close when we start in on our fall camp previews. I am joined for this episode by Brad Geiger and Neil Langland, and we work through a unit-by-unit preview of the Colorado offense. Our yardstick for success? whether each unit should be ranked as one of the top six units in the Pac-12, or whether each room is still inferior by Power 5 standards. So, is Shadur Sanders one of the top six quarterbacks in the Pac-12? Will the improved quality of the running back room produce a bell cow back to carry the load? Or will CU ultimately choose to go with a running back by committee approach? Are the wide receivers too similar in size and style to produce breakout players? Or should this be considered one of the most talented rooms on the roster? Does CU even consider tight ends to be a part of the team? And ultimately the most important question, can the Buff coaching staff cobble together an offensive line which will allow CU's highly rated skill position players to shine or Will ineffective play along the line prove to be CU's Achilles heel in 2023? Let's find out. Okay, and we're back. And the globetrotting Brad Geiger is back in Highlands Ranch. Welcome back to the continent, Brad. How are you doing? Doing great. Uh, as I told Stuart, I got off the elevator in Amsterdam and ran into a guy in full CU garb who turned out to be the assistant tennis coach recruiting in the Netherlands. So uh, there are CU buffs everywhere. Well, you must have a good athletic department budget if you've got the assistant tennis coach recruiting in Amsterdam. So good that you were representing wearing CU gear so that you could recognize each other. Uh, Neil? Camped out, downtown Denver. How's Neil doing this evening? Okay, I'm rehabbing my ankle and sitting in front of the TV, waiting for the 21st to see what is not going to happen. But I want to be there. <laughs> well, the we most boring media day in a lot of years. Yeah, well, without Coach Prime there, it won't be as exciting as it might have otherwise been. He's going to sit it out after doing his uh, second surgery. Shadur and Travis will be there, and it's not like they're not familiar with being interviewed. So probably not a whole lot going on. But then again, 
we could always be surprised and we could have the long-awaited Pac-12 media contracts announced and we'll have something more exciting and new to talk about than we have for the last couple of months. But whether or not anything happens at the Pac-12 media day, we do know that fall camp will be opening here in a couple of weeks and to help get everybody ready for fall camp, we're going to go and do a unit by unit preview, talk about some position battles, talk about uh, how the things are lining up for the University of Colorado heading into fall camp. This episode, we're going to focus on the offensive side of the ball. And what I've asked our co-hosts here to think about in terms of the unit by unit, that we want to decide whether or not we believe that each unit is a strength or a weakness. And the guideline I put out was not whether or not it was a better team or better unit than what CU had last year, because that'd make for a pretty boring episode. So the yardstick we're going to measure these units by is whether or not they are a top half of the Pac-12 unit or a weakness being in the bottom half, remaining in the bottom half of the Pac-12 if Colorado is going to make it to a bowl game and have a winning season, you'd think that they'd have to have some units that are in the top half of the conference. So let's start, gentlemen, with the quarterbacks, which, well, won't take very long to go through the roster because there are only three scholarship quarterbacks on the team, Shadur Sanders, a junior, and then two true freshmen, Ryan Staub and Kaysen Weissman, with Ryan Staub having the I suppose the leg up on being the backup because he was around for spring practices, but both are true freshmen. So, Neil, we'll start with you. Shadur Sanders, obviously a quality quarterback. Is he in the top six in the Pac-12? Is uh, the unit going to be good enough to get through a a Pac-12 season? Let me take the second first. I hope. It's fingers crossed. And it depends on a lot of things, not just Sanders' skill alone, but his elusiveness, whether or not the offensive line's any good, and we'll get to that. But I'm bullish on him. I, I would put him probably somewhere seven to eight, just because I'm worried about the moving up in class and moving classification and the new offense and taking a little time to gel. It'll affect his performance. And other than that, I'm very pleased with him and hoping that he stays healthy because if he's healthy, then CU has a chance. Okay, so you're classifying the unit as a whole as a as a weakness, not in the top six in the Pac-12. Well, I have it two scores. On average, with all the guys in the QB room, it's 11. With uh, Sanders alone, I think we, uh, we're about seven. Okay. Brad, we've got a quarterback that's going to be starting that was recruited out of high school by the likes of Alabama and LSU. So obviously there's some other folks thought this gentleman named Sanders had power five talent. Do you think that's going to translate into a a power five result for the University of Colorado? I think in terms of his ability and talent, I think he's more like a top five quarterback um, with the capacity to be even better than that. Um, I think he's elusive. I think he's got a strong arm. I'm looking at his highlights. I think he's got really good vision. Um, he 
unsurprisingly seems to understand the game and I think has the work ethic to be good at it. So if, if we were just grading Shadur Sanders, yeah, this would be a strength. I think we would be confident that he could go up and play against most of the teams in the conference. Um, that said, if we're rating units, yeah, we have to knock them down for the fact that in the modern college game, quarterbacks don't play every snap. Really unusual. And we just have no idea what the backups are going to look like. So not only does that give you concern if Shadur gets hurt, it also gives you concern for play calling because bottom line is we cannot be as aggressive on some plays and we cannot let Shadur be as aggressive as his skill would let him be because there's just nothing behind him. So um, I think we're going to see a lot of max protects. I don't think a lot of rollouts. I think Shadur is going to be trained and taught to get rid of the ball that you know we can't quite take the risks that we might if we had somebody behind you. But again, he's got the talent to make this team much better. And you know, as a group, I would say probably weakness seven or eight. But if he stays healthy and we're able to play a little bit more, it could it could get higher. Okay. You know, would you buy into that? I mean, the idea that uh got a Sean Lewis offense and it's going to be one, two and gone that uh, Shador can stay healthy or glass half empty. Yes, he was recruited by Alabama and LSU, but there's no guarantee he'd be starting for Alabama and LSU. So you still uh, thinking if we use the parameter that he might be able to stay healthy with the play calling and his natural gift for getting away that he might be able to impress you by the end of the season? Well, it's, I'm impressed with him. I think he is being constrained by the supporting cast. Play calling is going to be very important. We can't afford any seven-step drops, you know, and pass plays that take three seconds or four seconds to develop. Sanders has a nice fade, a nice drop, and he holds the ball low. But once he's decided, it's up and out quickly, reminiscent of Dan Marino in that way, a good short stroke. Good velocity, nice tight ball, very catchable, throws it to a good spot on the receiver. So I'm as long as he can play, and as long as we have some balance in the offense, and that means play calling not just on pass plays, but getting some good runs, getting some some good strategy there where we're mixing, where we're running when we want to, not when we have to, and we're passing when we want to. Uh, Sanders could have a great year. I'm just concerned that there's not enough around him that even though the quality of his play may be high, the performance will be encumbered and restricted by what else is around him. Okay. Well, Brad, I'll give you the first shot at the running backs, five scholarship backs, uh, senior Cavosier Smoke coming in from Kentucky, Savon Wilkerson, transfer from Jackson State's a junior. A couple of sophomores, a transfer from Houston, Alton McCaskill, and returning, one of the few returning buffs, Anthony Hankerson. Uh, I guess you always can talk about walk-on Charlie Offerdahl. He'll be a sophomore this year. And then true freshman, Dylan Edwards, who was the former Notre Dame commit that flipped over and uh, the four-star back that became a buff. 
got the 115th ranked rushing offense last year with not a whole lot going on. Now you've got some backs that, well, McCaskill rushed for almost 1,000 years as a true freshman. Wilkerson did rush for over 1,000 yards. And who knows how good Dylan Edwards might be. He looked pretty impressive in the spring practices in the spring game. So is this unit now going to be a strength? Is this a top six Pac-12 unit or still a work in progress that you have some unproven transfers, at least at the Pac-12 Power 5 level? Or are you excited about what you're going to see this fall? I am really excited about this group. I think McCaskill's for for real, and I wouldn't be surprised if he's not running. I'd be very surprised if he wasn't running with the with the top at the beginning of camp. Smoke, I think, brings some skills and has played against high-end competition. And, I mean, let's face it, Edwards is just more talented than anybody we've had for a while. So we don't know how the rotation is going to work. They keep saying they're going to pick a guy and stay with the guy. And if they do, that's almost certainly McCaskill. And I think that there is every reason to believe that if he is getting the starting and, again, the that we can get some blocking out in front of him, that he can be the guy to take pressure off Sanders. Um, and then you start, particularly later in the season, start working Edwards in, working more on a speed back or a third down back, and then get working into an every, day, every down back. I think this is a strength. I, I got no problem saying that they are as good as or better than the majority of the units in the league. This is where we have the best depth and the best talent. Okay. Well, Neil, there's some at least depth, which is, I guess, we had a number of players. There were four or five backs last year that CU ran out there. None of them were superlative. Uh, running backs coach Gary Harrell talked though about having one guy. He wants an all-purpose guy to lead the group. He wasn't talking about doing running backs by committee. He said, in this offense, you've got to be smart. You've got to think like a quarterback when it comes to protection. When it comes to understanding what we call the box, things of that nature. So you got to know how to think like a quarterback. You got to be well conditioned because offensive coordinator, he dials it up. He goes pretty fast. And he said that we're going to run the football. So is there, it's nice to have some quality depth at running back, but is there an all purpose guy there that you see that you think would make this a unit of top six Pac 12 group? I think Brad's onto something with McCaskill. I think he's probably the most talented guy just in terms of agility, speed, and power and the balance of those things. Smoke understands power five. It just depends on how they blend into this new offense and the type of run schemes that they have. I think if the quote from the running backs coach, if that's the case, then I think that's going to, uh, work against the freshman Edwards, at least for a while. And I agree with Brad. He's probably going to be a situational back, uh, working himself in maybe on third down, perhaps earlier downs in the slot as a receiver. But I think it's going to be between those two guys in terms of who's going to be the lead dog there or the bell cow as the football nomenclature goes. I'll say one thing that they have the talent to be a 2,000-yard running game just with those running backs. If they could squeak out 1,600 or more, that should give them enough of a balance to where they can 
set up the passing game and be able to run the offense the way the new coach wants to run it. If those guys are not as advertised, boy, who knows? But I'm going to go with Brad and say that this is probably the sixth ranked running back room in the conference. So, Brad, I mean, I understand, you know, we talked about, you know, the bell cow and everything like that, but I think Neil makes a good point. you got to have that third down. And Dylan Edwards is not going anywhere on third and one. I mean, this guy is <laughs> – he's he's not going to be your bull going up the middle of the line. But um, then again, you know, Philip Lindsay was not a big guy, and they had no trouble running him up the middle and being successful with it. So would you rather see a running back by committee and have uh, situational players, or would it be better to have – the man and pick McCaskill and run with him until he proves he can't play. Well, they're just, that's not how the running back position works anymore. It doesn't work that way in the NFL. It doesn't work that way. Most of in most places in the NCAA. And that's for good reason. Uh, what Dylan Edwards can do on third and five is different one that, than what Convosi smoke can do on third and one. And, or what McCaskill can do on first and 10. So, yeah, I mean, you talk about wanting the bell cow, that's really nice to have, but that's just not what we're seeing anymore. And there's a reason Philip Lindsay didn't stick in the NFL. You have to be able to do a lot of different things, and you do that with different guys. And I still think, I understand what the coach has said, I still think we're going to see at least those three guys out there doing their doing a different thing although i think all three of them can do everything some i think each of them does one or two things better and i would be very shocked if we don't see some of that on a game by game or even i I don't think we're going to be switching drive by drive but i think as game plans improve we'll see all three of those guys at the very minimum okay well neil your turn we'll talk about wide receivers We've got a dozen scholarship wide receivers, and pretty folks are pretty excited about the group as a whole, even though six of the 12 are going to be true freshmen. So talk about the ones that aren't true freshmen. We have two seniors, transfers, Xavier Weaver and Javon Antonio. Jimmy Horn Jr. is a junior. Willie Gaines is a junior, and Jalen Ellis. All transfers, of course, that's counting Travis Hunter as a potential wide receiver. Tavarish Dawson is another sophomore. And then, of course, you got the six freshmen, including two four-star freshmen, Adam Hopkins and Omarion Miller, coming in. So a lot of potential there, some success, at least at a 1-11 South Florida team. And, of course, you've got Travis Hunter, which is our all-everything player, who received honorable mention Pac-12 uh, accolades from the Pac-12 media, even though he's first-team cornerback and first-team all-purpose returner, he's also honorable mention wide receiver. So is it going to be a strength to have uh, this many wide receivers, or are there just a lot of potentially good players and not enough really good players to make this one of the top units in, in the conference? Coming into the the offseason, coming into summer, I thought that this was probably the best group, position group on the team. 
I think I may have been wrong about that. I think the running backs are better because there are some question marks about the receivers, mainly about coming up in classification, playing in a new offense, at least for a little while, and some of those guys getting to know their new quarterback. So it's going to be a little while before they're clicking. But I think in terms of talent, uh, where the Pac-12 is loaded with wide receivers, this could easily be just on the basis of talent alone. Oh, rank somewhere between seven and eight around in there, depending upon how much uh, Travis plays. I'm hoping that they find a Westbrook style big body receiver in there. You know, someone 6'4", 220, somewhere in that neighborhood that can just be like a basketball center backing somebody down and just using his body to screen the ball. So that they need a mix. And I, the thing that worries me is I'm not sure that they have enough diversity in their, in their players to have every kind of receiver you need to have to have a successful passing game. Okay. Well, Brad, there's a lot of speed in the unit. That's for certain. But you share Neil's concern that they have five or six players that are kind of carbon copies of one another and not enough diversity in the wide receiver room? Or can the uh, Buffs just run at them in waves and with the speed-up offense of Sean Lewis just wear down defensive backs in the Pac-12? Oh, I think that's going to be the plan. I don't think there's much question about that. We, uh, you know, yeah, do I wish that there was a Drake London in this group? Yeah, there isn't. What we do have is guys who, not just who are speed guys, but guys who've shown that they can go up, they can get the ball, they can make the catch. Um, There's some hands in this group. Uh, Jimmy Horm can catch stuff that comes at him. Travis Hunter can catch stuff that comes at him. So I do think that we're going to get more contested catches than we did in the past. I think this is a unit perhaps more than well, no, not more than the offensive line, but this is a unit that I think is going to get better. The thing is this, they're already working with Shadour Sanders. We already know that they're there developing that rare and impossible to find thing called chemistry. But I will be really surprised if Jimmy Horn, you know, isn't a six, 700 yard receiver. Now that may all come later, but I think... And while Travis Hunter may not be a 500-yard receiver, I think he's going to make catches when we need them at distance and, and on, for, on third down when we need them that are truly going to matter. So, uh, yeah, I would. And Neil's right. We would always love you know, the guy who's 6'5 and can go up. But these guys, I think, are probably going to start at the middle of the pack and then by end of the season be better than that. Okay. Well, Neil, does it make you feel any better that there, you know, two Jackson State receivers? I mean, you got Travis Hunter, you also got, you know, Willie Gaines coming over from Jackson State. So there's some continuity there. The two South Florida receivers obviously know a lot about each other. And you got two four stars. We're not used to having four star recruits. Yeah, we're excited about Dylan Edwards at running back, but you got two four star freshmen. But in your book, that's still not enough to uh, make this a top unit, at least at the beginning of the season? Just the uncertainty I have about how these guys are going to play at a higher level against more sophisticated defenses, perhaps, 
and a higher overall level of talent. Uh, I think Brad's right that there are receivers who can function like large wide receivers or tight ends that can go up and get the ball, especially in the end zone. And we've talked about that before in previous podcasts. There are guys that can do that. I, I think the limiting factor with these receivers is going to be how well they're going to be able to blend in together, blend with the offense and adjust to the higher level of competition. And I think the guys that Brad mentioned, Horn and those guys are probably going to be just fine, but we're going to need more than two or three guys to be significant receivers. And I'm not sure that we have those guys yet. Yeah. Okay. Well, moving on, Brad, uh, you get the, enviable position of talking about the the tight end groups we have more people on this podcast than we have scholarship tight ends <laughs> caleb fourier lewis passarello now they did pick up elijah yelverton as a preferred walk-on from iowa who managed to be at the university of iowa for some two or three years and never catch a ball so he'll fit right in of course with the uh, tight ends at the university of colorado so I'm guessing that you're not going to see that this is a uh, a top six tight end room at the University of Colorado. What do you think is going on there? I mean, obviously, you know, it's where we could joke about it, but is this just going to be a, a couple of larger running backs playing H-back or a couple of larger wide receivers coming in and maybe being a slot and pretend sort of tight end? Or what's the plan? Is tight end just a – a position we aren't even going to talk about at the University of Colorado. I, I fear that that's true. I think that you have to feel with like guys like Eric Olson, who I think had the talent to play at CU, deciding not to, that they have seen the future and it ain't them. That there's something in Sean Lewis's offense that just says, we're not going to be doing that. And part of it may simply be that at Lewis is going to be more comfortable putting four wide receivers out there than the tight end. It may also be that since we suddenly have a plethora of offensive linemen, that we're going to alternate between four and even five wides or just lining up a tackle at the, at the tight end position. Yeah, I think we're going to see a, a really interesting combination of wide receivers to make up for the lack of ability at tight end. I think Passarello probably will probably get the start, but who knows? And if another guy showed up here in August, would any of us be shocked? Which is amazing because the idea that we're looking for more tight ends was laughable last year. Last year we had you know, what 27 of them and three of them <laughs> caught passes or something yes. like that. I worried that, you know, as I've said in the past, one of the things you like having more tight ends and linebackers on the, on the roster is that those are the guys who cover kickoffs. Those are the guys who cover punts and i don't know who's going to be doing that now but this it is what it is and like i said something has occurred that says to guys who want to play football as a tight end that this ain't where it's going to happen yeah well neil i'm just going to go ahead and put a w for you for weakness <laughs> i'm guessing that uh you're not going to sing the praises of the Colorado tight end unit, either as blockers or placeholders or people that will 
run plays in and out for Shadur Sanders. I mean, is there any reason to even talk about the tight end group at the University of Colorado this year? Well, yeah, let me tell you a little story about that is that earlier in life when I tried to pick stocks, my friends would always ask me what I was buying and then they would go short on those. So <laughs> in one of our earlier podcasts, I thought that Eric Olson was going to be the guy this year, at least to start with. And I was out on that limb and he just kind of sawed it off. So that shows how much credibility I should have with respect to tight ends. That said, uh, I was sort of surprised and somewhat pleased uh, to see Passarello perform the way he did in the spring game. He's a big body, seems to be able to move a little bit, seems to have a little trouble catching the ball. Uh, maybe it was just my perception, or if it is a problem, perhaps it can be cured over the summer. The tight ends coach, um, Tim, Tim, help me with his Brewster. name. Tim Brewster. Yeah, he said he likes a single guy who's big, you know, 6'5", 260, can block, and then can uh, get open over the middle and get first downs. Passarello seems like about the only guy on campus right now that meets that description. So coming out of the shoot to the extent there is a tight end, it's going to be him. That said, he hasn't played much, and there's no one behind him. So I'm going to have to say, agree with you, that this is a W. Yeah. Well, Brad, speaking of Tim Brewster, I mean, he gives fired-up speeches. He was the head coach at the University of Minnesota. So this is not some, you know, 27-year-old up-and-coming coach that they're just finding a slot for so they can get him used to and bringing him in to recruit. I mean, what – what do you think Coach Prime is doing with Tim Brewster if he's only got a couple of guys to talk to every day? Well, I think he's got, I think, I think that offense is going to be, and I think Sean Lewis is going to lead it, but I think that guys like Brewster were brought in as kind of the voice of reason to go in there because that's not Dion's strength. I assume that as a tight end coach, he's going to be talking to the tackles about how you maybe throw a block or two. Um, maybe he's going to be looking at a couple of those tackles who might be able to catch a pass or two. And I think he's also going to be working with the wide receivers because, you know, that's a big room. So I think there's work for him to be done. And then I hope there is recruiting for him to be done so that uh, come next year, we don't have the same problem. Okay. Well, Neil, of course, we saved the offensive line, let you lead off with our good friends at the offensive line. Just a little brief overview for you. There's 14 scholarship offensive linemen at this point. Three of them are freshmen, so we're just going to not worry about them at this point because we assume that freshmen, if they're playing, they're either a freak of nature or the team's in real trouble. But there are two seniors, uh, both transfers, Landon Beebe, Reggie Young. One of the juniors is a holdover, Gerard Christian Lichtenhan. Three junior transfers, Tyler Brown, Isaiah Yatta, and Jack Bailey. Sophomores, you've got a returning center from the last year's team, Van Wells. Savion Washington, you know, one of the Kent States, Jack Wilty, another sophomore. Kareem Harden is recent. And Jeremiah McCrimmon, also recent um, into the fold. So overview, the, the Buffs are going to win any, win six games, go to a bowl game, 
the offensive line has to be at least adequate. Is this inadequate or is it above average? Is this team that uh, has an offensive line that's actually going to be a strength, one of the top six offensive lines in the Pac-12, or is this still a, a weakness that might be the Achilles heel of the Colorado 2023 season? Well, I'll answer directly. As a strength as it looks now, no. They're probably, I mean, if we're, if we're trying to be optimistic here, they could be nine, maybe eight toward the end of the season if everything gels. And some of these guys that are late bloomers, guys who rebooted, who were former highly rated recruits that bombed out at their earlier school for a variety of reasons. If those guys can come along, if they mesh well with the new offense, not sure that everyone that was brought in was necessarily a fit with Coach Lewis's scheme. And I'm wondering, given what Coach Prime said about the team out there at the spring game is not going to be the one that shows up on September 2nd, how much of that applied to the O-line? I'd be surprised if both Wells and Tank were starters. Game okay. one, uh, actually, uh, just because I think this is going to be one of the most, if not most competitive position group on the entire team. And we just don't know how these guys are going to play. Uh, they're just unknown when it comes to being at this level. And for other reasons that I mentioned, everybody has a question mark about them and whether they can adapt and whether they can fit in with the O-line scheme. And this new coach remains to be seen. I know he was very unhappy early in mid-spring ball, uh, turned a little more optimistic at the end. I'm, I'm not optimistic, honestly, because it takes time for an offensive line to gel. You just can't pull five guys together and have them run scrim or seven-on-seven seven stuff, or, well, that's not a line. They just have them run dry plays and expect them to mesh and be up to speed for the first game. So I'm going to say they're going to be weak at least the first four games, and hopefully they'll come along. And I'm going to say there's probably maybe one holdover starter from last year. Everyone else is new. Okay, Brad. Well, it seems to be a constant thread of discussion about not only the offensive line, but about the whole team, but certainly offensive line Talk about one unit that has to think with one mind and be able to react and deal with the what's going on as one unit that they can't play individual games. And the University of Colorado with 70-odd new players has a lot of that to deal with, but it's certainly going to be affecting the offensive line. Wouldn't it make sense to have the two holdovers, uh, Lichtenhan and Van Wells from last year, and then have uh, the two Kent State starters, Jack Bailey and Savion Washington, you know, that played for this offensive coordinator, played for this offensive line coach, Bill O'Boyle. Wouldn't that give you some continuity right there if you have four of those players that at least have some history with each other? Or does it matter? And there's just no chance that this is going to be a unit that's going to be able to blend and play as one and be an effective top six Pac-12 unit before November? 
Well, I, I think the two Kent state starters are a lot more than the two former CU starters because they didn't learn anything. We watched <laughs> them play. Okay. So the idea that, yeah, that they've met and been in the rooms together. Yeah. That perhaps matters. They don't have, you know, they've got to lo- learn an entirely new blocking scheme that involves blocking and schemes. And that's not what they had last year. So I'm not convinced that that that's, I think, Lick, Christian Lichtenhan. I'm never going to get that right. Just, um, we'll just call him Tank like everybody else. I, yeah, I, I think yeah, there's a reason. I think, <laughs> you know, again, it, it, you know, is it the Jimmy the X's and the O's or the Jimmy's and the Joe's? I think we have three guys who can unquestionably play. I think Van Wells needed to get bigger. He needed to get stronger. And I think he's somebody who could get coached up, but he's certainly a long way from guaranteed. So I wouldn't be surprised if we essentially see um, the two tenth Kent state guys start out the season and tank at the other side. And then we're playing games about the rest of them. I'm not sure that, like I said, I, you're always worried about what your center does. And the fact that Van Wells could play last year, not well, let's be honest. He got better. Doesn't mean a whole heck of a lot to his relationship with Shadur Sanders. Doesn't mean a lot about his understanding. And that that's, if you got a bigger concern, is if Van Wells cannot understand or does not very early on show that he understands the blocking schemes, then we have a big problem. And somebody else is going to have to step in there. An argument can be made that center is the second most intellectual position in football, certainly in quarterback being number one, but center and safety probably have to know more about how their side works than anybody else. And it was clear at the spring game that nobody understood what was going on. Will I, you know, I lay awake at night worrying about the offensive line against TCU. I think they're going to come at us from 101 different directions. And I think our offensive line will be ready to stop about 30 of them. And so that could be a scary game. But the good news is I think the coaches know it. I think there are ways to protect them in some extent. I think, like I said, our lack of a tight end may mean that we've got a max protect package in there a lot. And we're going to try to you know run the ball and try to do that. So, yeah, this is a weakness. There's no doubt it's a weakness. Everybody knew it was going to be a weakness. And everybody's going to believe that until they prove otherwise. Okay. Well, Neil... I mean, are you at least encouraged by, you know, some of the numbers? There are eight of the players that are coming back or that are on the team right now that had starting experience at the collegiate level. And there's three other transfers that earned first or second team junior All-American, junior college All-American honors. These players at least have played. Now, they might not have gone up against power five defensive lines, but they have at least starting experience. And you've got, you know, Tyler Brown. He's coming from Jackson State, so he's familiar with, you know, Coach Prime. Landon Beebe might be, you know, the the, the center. If Van Wells isn't going to be the center, you know, he's a, got a lot of accolades, but he did play at Missouri State. So does it help to have starting experience? I mean, you know, obviously it doesn't hurt, but does that give you any modicum of optimism about this unit that, they're used, at least used to being out on the field for 80 plays a game, and there's enough depth there. Or 
the last couple of recruits that they got, you know, were you had to look up their schools. I mean, they weren't even schools from FCS. I mean, we're talking way into the depth. So does that give you more concern that they, the coaching staff, don't even believe that they have enough depth and quality to uh, field the Power Five offensive line? Well, let me argue the other side of what I said earlier. And I think you and Brad raised good points about the Kent State guys and the Jackson State guys having some familiarity between themselves, especially if one of the Kent State guys is going to play center or is going to help with the the line calls. K-State, that had the best JUCO team in football all those years in the Big 8 and the Big 12, and they're still and they're good again for many many years did it with junior college players that right. came in and their first year playing in the power five just went wild and played very well that could happen here there's just not enough data on these guys to really know how good they're going to be how good their competition was and you know how they may have matured between the time they were playing Chico and the time they got to see you. So without knowing, I mean, I can take a flyer and say maybe by the game eight, they could be, you know, like a number eight or a number nine line in the, in the, excuse me, in the Pac-12. There's just too many unknowns at this point. I can't keep hammering that point, but we don't know what we don't know. And there are known unknowns and unknown unknowns here. <laughs> and if they're in the bottom three in the first eight games, then Shadur Sanders might not be standing come game eight. You know, so uh, if I look at my scorecard here, Brad, you started off really well with this offense. You know, it looks like you think the skill positions are all pretty much top six, Pac-12, but then we kind of slid backwards once we got to the big boys. So having weaknesses at the tight end and offensive line units, is that going to offset the strength of the quarterback, running back, and wide receiver rooms? Or would you say that the Colorado offense, maybe not game one, but the Colorado offense by, you know, the by how we judge the 2023 season looking backwards in December, will this be a, a top six offense? Will they generate top six points, top six yards? You know, however else we would judge the offense at that point, would this be a top six Pac-12 offense, or you think it'll probably slide into a a bottom six Pac-12 offense in a losing season? I think we have to adjust expectation. I think that this is probably a middle of the pack, six, seven, eight quality offense. That will by the end of the se- that will by the end of the season look more like a four five six quality offense. You know, we start off a tough schedule. Uh, it would be if we can. You know, I don't TCU is a tough tough win. CSU we should still be better at. Nebraska's just Nebraska, but I do think that if we can survive those first four or five games, if we can keep the offensive line healthy and they can start playing together. I think if you want to, by the end of the season, what we're going to do is we're going to look back and say, maybe we didn't get the wins we wanted. 
But by God, in those last three games, this offense showed what they can do. And that's what I'm hoping for. I think we can get there. I think the talent is there. I mean, and I think the chance for improvement is there in ways that we haven't seen for a couple of years. So, yeah, I think we're probably overall, if you just take the stats at the end of the year, we're going to be towards the bottom. But I think there's going to be a good trend line. Okay. So, Neil, you were pretty negative throughout. The running backs you thought were a strength, but everything else was probably below the Mendoza line. So is there enough good quality coaches to help offset some of the potential troubles in the units or is this pretty much guaranteed to be a a bottom half of the pac-12 offense well i think brad's right statistically overall 12 the answer to that is no however if we do what the baseball announcers do and talk about players that are hitting over 300 for the last 20 games that could be something that happens to cu's offense for example take oregon state was it the 2018 or 19 game that they suddenly came alive in the second half of Folsom Field and have not looked back since then? They've become a power offense. We may see something like that sort of transformation, just not something that dramatic or that quick. But if it's going to come, it'll probably hit sometime around game seven or game eight. And I'm crossing my fingers that that's going to be the case because the toughest part of the schedule will be behind them most likely. And they'll have a better chance to move the ball against teams that aren't Oregon or USC. And with that improvement, I think they'll probably be playing probably, as Brad said, somewhere around seven, eight uh, in their last three or four games. Okay. Well, well, we will grade on improvement perhaps. And hopefully the fan base at the university of Colorado will, uh, stick with the team and not be too discouraged at uh, what might happen in September. But I think we'll let that be the last word for the offense. We will talk in two weeks about the defense and special teams. And of course, we will talk about the PAC 12 media contracts. (laughs) We won't be able to talk numbers or say anything definitive, but we will talk. I didn't say there would be Pac-12 media contracts. I just said we would talk about Pac-12 media contracts. So, um, But hopefully, if we talk about it enough times, it will actually turn into something. And maybe at the Pac-12 media day, there will be a surprise. And we'll have an announcement. The, some of the latest quotes was about, you know, we're going to be pleasantly surprised. And it was worth the wait. And, yeah. We'll, we'll see it when we see it, and we will dissect it. And so maybe that will be part of the next podcast. But for now, we'll just yeah, I hope everybody is now adequately prepared to look for position battles um, in the running backs, wide receivers, and offensive line, and you know be better prepared for fall camp. So thank you, gentlemen. Welcome back to the States, Brad. And keep healing, Neil. And we'll talk to both of you soon. Go Buffs. Thank you, Brad. Thank you, Stu. Hey, thank you both for listening to the podcast and for being a member of the Buff Nation, which has become the talk of the nation. I hope you are subscribing to the podcast so you won't miss any of the upcoming episodes. 
We have partnered with Mile High Sports and are pleased to be part of their podcast network. As always, you can find the See What the Game podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and other podcast sites. Or, if you're not a fan of downloading podcasts, all of the episodes can be listened to at the See You at the Game website. I'll be back again in two weeks with Neil and Brad, and we will conclude our fall camp preview with a look at CU's defensive and special teams rosters. Until then, be well, stay safe, and go Buffs! Thank you for listening to our See You at the Game podcast. For links to articles and stories referenced in this podcast, go to cuatthegame.com. That's the letter C, the letter U, at thegame.com. If you have comments or suggestions, you can leave them on the website or send an email to cuatthegame at gmail.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please be sure to subscribe and share it with your fellow Buff fans. Until next time when we will again see you at the game.